0: Amen. Well, good morning. Great to see you. How's everybody doing? All right. Anybody play upward basketball yesterday? Anyone here for that? few of you might have been. That place was packed out. We had a great first uh, week. So that was awesome. You played. You were awesome because you're on Coach Glenn's team. So, And you guys can be dismissed. Uh, kids uh, grade six and down can be dismissed um, to Children's Church. So you guys are on your way. Hey, welcome to church this morning. If I don't know you, my name is Glenn. Glenn Barnes, one of the pastors here. Um, and happy to share with you. Um, hey, I do have a question. Are there any 49ers fans here? How are you guys doing this morning? That was a little rough, huh? Yeah, kind of stressful evening. And I just have a question. When it comes to kind of like mental health and stability, um, is yelling at the TV okay or not? Is that something you need to seek help for? I'm asking for a friend. This is not me at all, but just... So, anyways, yes, that was a little rocky, but we will play next week um, as well. So, hey, when you came in, hopefully you received some message notes. You're going to want to grab those out. Keep a Bible close by uh, as we are continuing in this series on what it means to follow after Christ. And I want to start by just asking you to try to imagine something. I want to put you in a scene. Try to imagine that you're seeing something and you're seeing someone that you've never seen before. Now, it's not like you've not thought about this thing. You've actually thought about it often. You just figured you would never get the opportunity to see this in your lifetime. And now that you're actually seeing it with your own eyes, it's so different than what you expected it might be. So it all started for you when you arrived in Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Passover festival. It, this is a big deal for your whole family to be here. Uh, the last few years, you weren't able to make it. it's just too much money, too much work. But this year, you scraped and you saved and you said, we are gonna be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so you arrive in Jerusalem and you are full of the anticipation and the excitement. You wanna be on all in and everything that the city offers as we remember God's faithfulness uh, to our people through the years. And so you arrive full of excitement. And, and right away, you can tell that there's kind of a tension in the city. Now, there's always a tension with the Romans around. That's just the way it's been for years now. But it seems like the tension's just a, a little bit m- more. There's also been whispers, maybe even, you might even call them rumors, that maybe this year is the one where the Messiah, the King, might show up for the festival in Jerusalem as well. In fact, the talk is centered around this guy from Nazareth, which didn't seem to make sense, but there's this guy from Nazareth that they say actually has healed people and done miracles. People that you've met have seen him do these miracles, and and you hear about it. They say he teaches with an authority. He calls himself the, the son of man, right out of the book of, of Daniel. He, he goes so far as to actually tell people that he forgives their sins and he promises them eternal life. And so you just wonder, could this be the, the, the king? Could this be the one that you've been waiting for? Well, you arrive in the town and you, you head out and you feel this tension and you're trying to kind of get to the bottom of it. And, and so you start to, to follow the crowd and you look not too far out of the old city, up on Skull Hill, you see that there's a big group that's gathered together. So you head up there, up onto Skull Hill. And, and as you get closer, you see that there are three crosses where there are hanging three criminals. There's nothing new here. You've seen this a lot of times before. You never get used to it. You hate it, but that's what Romans do with the, the people they don't like. They throw them on crosses. And, and so there's these three criminals being crucified. But as you get a little closer before long, you see this thing that you never thought you would see. You see over the middle cross, there's a sign that's written clearly in three different languages so that people can, can read it. All different people can, can read it. And it's got a name. It says, Jesus of Nazareth. And then in one of the languages, in Latin, it says this, Rex Eudorum. You know that it means the King of the Jews. And you look at this man on the cross and you think, could it be? Could, could that be the king of our people? I mean, after all, it, I, I, what kind of king allows himself to be crucified? And yet you watch and before long, it doesn't take long, you can tell that he's getting weaker and weaker. And, and when he breathes his last breath, he cries out to God in this great cry. And then he breathes his last breath, this, this man hanging on the cross, this Jesus of Nazareth. And, and believe it or not, you feel the earth start to shake underneath your feet and then the sky turns dark. It's the middle of the day, but the sky goes dark. You hear later that there was a, uh, the, the veil in the temple that, that separates the holy place of God from the place where people could be. You hear at that same moment that the, the veil was torn in two. Even one of the Roman soldiers who's in charge of the whole execution says loud enough for the people gathered around to hear, "'Surely that one was the Son of God.'" And so you just wonder, could it be true? Was that one the king after all? Well, If what I just described to you, let's just say that it was the opening scene of a movie. And so you watch that scene play out in the movie, and you've got this question in your head, could this man really be a king? I want to suggest that maybe the next scene that would come in a movie is that the, the camera would begin to pan away, and they'd pan away from Golgotha and from the sign above the cross, and the screen would fade to black, and then these words would appear on the screen three years earlier. And then the next scene would come up to try to help you make sense of this question that's now stirring in your mind, could this one really be the king? And the scene that they flashed to three years earlier would be a totally different vibe. It's more cheerful, it's sunny, and walking along the Sea of Galilee is this same Jesus that was hanging on the cross three years later. The Gospel of Mark describes this new scene in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, and this is what it says about it. It says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good good news of god so here's jesus walking along by the sea of galilee and he's proclaiming the good news of god what is this good news what's this message of good news that jesus is proclaiming it says the time has come he said the kingdom of god has come near repent and believe the good news Then immediately after Jesus announces this good news that the kingdom of God that used to be far away now has come near, he sees these four fishermen, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. He calls them to come and follow after him to be his disciples. And we read that these four fishermen leave their nets, leave their boats, and they begin to follow. They begin to follow. So hopefully by now you know that this year our theme as a church is all about what it means to follow after Jesus. Our theme for the year is what does it mean to be a disciple? And so already in the first couple weeks we've been digging into this question, what is a disciple? And we saw that the the idea of a disciple begins with a great call and, and a clear call and that call is come and follow me. That's the starting point. Jesus says follow me and if you say yes you begin to follow and you, you enter into this relationship that's not only just a, rooted in a great call, but it's also founded on this great command. So the center, central command of the followers of Jesus is the one that Steve talked about last week, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. So you had a great call. You got a great command. Today, we want to look at this idea that if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, it's also a call to be a citizen of a great kingdom and a citizen of a place that has a great king. So that's what we want to talk about today, a great kingdom and a great king. Now, if you are a longtime Christian and you were paying attention, already Jesus said something that may just be a little off for you. It maybe just feels kind of surprising because it says that Jesus walking along the the Sea of Galilee was uh, looking for disciples and he was proclaiming the good news of God, proclaiming the good news of God. You probably know that the the word good news, or the word good news, is from the Greek word euangelion. It's often translated as gospel. So Jesus was out talking about the gospel. Now, if you're a good Christian, and a good American Christian especially, you know what the gospel is all about, right? What would Jesus have been talking about? Jesus would have been talking about this gospel that probably involved his death on the cross in our place. His wounds have paid my ransom. So his death so that I could be forgiven of my sins, and one day I could go to heaven when I die, and that certainly is the good news and the gospel of God. And yet, is there is there more? Because Jesus, when he talks about it, doesn't lead with forgiveness of sins and doesn't lead with something that is out there in the future. He doesn't lead with something that, that's coming one day. Jesus, when he talks about the gospel, talks about something that is here and now. He says that it's the good news of the kingdom that has come near, so repent and believe. In other words, the kingdom used to be far away, used to be distant, used to be out there, up there, but now in me, Jesus says, the kingdom has come near. And it's not just here in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus starts to talk like this, that he brings this new kingdom here on earth. In places like Luke chapter 8, Luke 8 verse 1, it says this, after Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him. So he goes out, and what's he doing? Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and the 12 were following. But the 12 weren't just listening to this, they also got to participate in it. Luke 9 one says this, when Jesus had called the 12 together, there's the disciples, we want to be disciples, when he called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Jesus actually kept talking about the kingdom and God so much that, that eventually they put him on a, a cross. They kill him. Three days later, he raises from the dead. What's one of the first things we read about Jesus after he's raised from the dead? Acts 1.3 says this. He appeared to them, his disciples again, over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom Of God. In fact, when you get to the very last book, our very last verse of the book of Acts, it's not Jesus talking here, but it's the Apostle Paul. And what does Paul say at the very end of Acts? He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And here's what I want you to see: you could make a very strong argument that the central message of the heart of Jesus's ministry was about this good news of the kingdom of God, and not just a kingdom of God that. That is out there and one day, but a kingdom of God that is here and now, right? Jesus uses words that we often associate with the the gospel. He uses words like salvation and saved as a part of his ministry. In fact, he uses salvation or saved 10 times. So that's a big deal that he talks about it a lot. He uses words like forgiveness, talks about forgiveness of, of sin up to 40 times. That's quite a bit. Jesus, you guys, talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which is basically two ways of saying the same thing, 98 times in his ministry he talks about the kingdom of God. There's only 89 chapters in all four of the Gospels. So more than one time per chapter, Jesus is talking about this kingdom of God, and it just makes you think, oh my goodness, is this a central message of what Jesus is all about? In fact, whenever you see words like Messiah or Christ, even son of, uh, son of Man, those are kingdom words because they're kingly words. They're saying that there's a kingdom where Jesus is the king, and anywhere that Jesus is the king is known as the kingdom of God. So, point being, I think you get it. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of talk about the kingdom of God is central to what Jesus is talking about, and yet, if you're like me, who's been a follower for, of Christ for you know over 30 years, still at times the kingdom of God feels kind of mysterious. It's just kind of hard to wrap your mind around and really describe what is the, the nature of the, the kingdom of God. So for instance, when you're talking about when does the kingdom of God take place, we've already kind of alluded to this. We know that it's something that's already here, but we know that it's something that's also still out there in the future. So we read that Mark 1 14 where it's, Jesus says the kingdom of God has is, is, is come near. But if you go like Matthew 16, Jesus says that one day uh, he's going to be again in the future. He'll return and he'll be coming in his kingdom. And so it's also future out there. At the last supper, Jesus is with his disciples. And we talk about this almost every month. And we see that Jesus says to his disciples, the next time that we eat this meal together is going to be in my father's kingdom. In other words, there's still this kingdom that's out there. And so when you talk about the when of the kingdom, it's both now But it's not yet. I remember a professor in college teaching us that expression. It's now and it's not yet. And and so it feels a little mysterious sometimes. But what about the what is the kingdom? You know, if you had to describe what is the, the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus does a lot on this, but oftentimes Jesus teaches in parables. You're familiar with this? Jesus uses parables to explain hard to understand things in easy, relatable terms and uh, ideas. And so one of the most common introductions to a parable of Jesus is he says something like this, the kingdom of God is like... And then he begins to explain it. So, for instance, in Luke 13, they asked Jesus, what is the kingdom of God like? Or Jesus asked them, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? And then he says this, well, the kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed that a man took and planted in the garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. And you're like, oh, okay, Jesus, the kingdom of God is like mustard? Is it like spicy mustard or, you know... I don't know, what kind of mustard is it like? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. No, no, he said again, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. And you're like, okay, Jesus, I get it. The kingdom of God is like, a woman baking bread. That's what the kingdom of God is about, right? I mean, I guess it goes with the mustard, but still a little fuzzy. The point is, is that Jesus is using different ways to explain what the kingdom of God is like. So in these, he's saying, you guys, sometimes the kingdom of God starts small. In fact, it often starts small. It'll feel invisible to you. It's like le- yeast or a mustard seed that's so tiny, it goes in there. It's small. It feels invisible. But you know, what? when it's allowed to nourish and when it's fed, it begins to grow and ultimately can become this big blessing to to people. So it feels invisible, but it's it's, it's real and it's at work. And so you're like, okay, I guess that's what the kingdom of God is like, but You don't quite grasp when it is, or it's hard to define what it's like. But when you look at Jesus' teaching, he says it's of ultimate value. What is the value of this? It's ultimately important. One of the parables that Jesus tells is about this pearl. And he says the kingdom is like a pearl. And if you find this thing, it is so valuable, it's such a great treasure. You would sell everything you have just so you could get the kingdom. So, in other words, it's a it's a big deal. Later on, or actually earlier, I guess it would be that Jesus was talking in his sermon where he talks the most about the kingdom of God and he's telling people not to worry about the stuff of the world and he says you know you worry too much about about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat but he says instead this is what you should do if you're going to be my disciples it says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you so it's of ultimate importance so again just to review let's get this straight if we follow you, Jesus, we become citizens of this kingdom, this new kingdom. And it's a great kingdom. It's ultimately important. It's the most valuable thing we've got. It's not really defined by time. It's here now, but it's also still to come. It's invisible, but it's growing. By the way, Jesus, we noticed that when you talked about this kingdom and you talked about being a king, it got you nailed to a cross. So is that part of it as well. And Jesus says, I see that you're getting it now. I think you're grasping it. Come and follow me so for the rest of the time this morning, what I want to do is I want to unpack a little bit of what the kingdom of God is all about according to Jesus' teaching. And we're actually going to look at what I think is Jesus' greatest explanation in kind of one place about the kingdom of God. We're talking about what is often known as the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew's chapter five, six, and seven are sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. That's not what Jesus called it. That's what kind of later editors called it. I actually think it's a terrible name for the sermon. That, that just describes where it took place. It'd be like calling what we're doing here the sermon in the church. It doesn't really describe what it's about. I think if there was a real title on this thing, it would be called the the Sermon About the Kingdom or something like that. So uh, if you have been reading in your 90 days through the Gospels, um, we're challenging everyone to spend the first 90 days of 2024 with Jesus, to be with Jesus. There's no better way to do that than, than reading through the Gospels. So if you have not started yet, you can still pick that up. You can find the reading plan online and, and, and jump into that. But if you've been keeping up with your reading, you know that just this week, the last few days, you've been reading the Sermon on the Mount, and it is some powerful um, stuff. And so before we jump into it, I want you to take a look at what the Sermon on the Mount might have looked or sounded a little bit like, according to our friends that put together the show, The Chosen. Let's take a look at this.
1: You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I <clears> to <throat> you. Do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone should slap you on your right cheek, turn and give him the other one also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And if anyone should force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break immensely. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall.
0: I hope you like that. I just love seeing the, some of the teachings of Jesus there in the, the sermon on the, about the kingdom or the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want us to do for our remaining time together is I want us to just to look at some characteristics of this kingdom uh, that are important for us. If, as, as disciples, we are citizens of this kingdom. These are some things that really describe the kingdom. So, um, and the first one is this, especially from the perspective, uh, uh, is that from our perspective, the kingdom of God is often going to feel like an upside down kingdom. If you listen to Jesus's teaching, you get this, right? He says things that just seem upside down to us. So for example, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes. It's eight statements on what it means to live a blessed life or how to be blessed or happy. Now, if you were Jesus's publicist and you heard that he was going to begin his sermon with eight ways to be blessed or eight ways to be happy. You would say, Jesus, that is a great idea. People love that how to be blessed stuff. Uh, why don't we actually package it into like an eight-week series and, you know, we could do t-shirts and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, people love how to be blessed, Jesus. That's a great way to start. And so Jesus says, okay, but then he starts in on how you're actually blessed. And this is what he says. He says stuff like this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm, That's a little different. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you read that and you think, man, that is so surprising. What a surprising twist on what it means to be happy or to be blessed. It's so Countercultural. It's so upside down, if you will, right? It's just different than the way we look at things. But Jesus gives us this upside down kingdom. And he goes on from there. That's just the introduction to the sermon. If you keep reading, you're going to hear that he says stuff like this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? Who does that kind of stuff? Forgive those that have wronged you. And not just forgive them, but go to them and make it right if you can. He says, don't worry about material possessions. Seek first the kingdom of God is the most important thing. It's very upside down. Give generously. Turn the other cheek. If someone slaps you on one cheek, give them the other as well. You don't have to fight back for that. Go the extra mile. If someone asks you to go two miles or forces you to go one mile with them, go, go two instead. Go to the extra mile. Be humble in how you practice your faith. You're not trying to put your prayers and your fasting and stuff on display, but just be humble in how you practice your faith. And the point I'm getting at is that all of this seems so countercultural in Jesus' day, and it seems countercultural in our day because it goes against our human nature. And our human nature has this sinful thing In us that's all about self and self-preservation and self-advancement. And that is what my nature wants and what my nature longs for. And Jesus comes and he says, no, he flips it on his head and he says, there is an upside down way to get at that. Now, here's the thing. It's, It's so difficult. You guys, for however many years old you are alive, you have been discipled by the kingdom of this world. Right, we've been discipled to say this is the most important stuff. Jesus comes along and he says, "Let me make you to be more like me. Be with me. Become like me. Do the things that I did." But to do that, we're going to have to take some of that old stuff and we're going to have to pull it out and we're going to have to replace it with my stuff. You guys, that's the journey of the discipleship, of discipleship, and it is not easy, but it is so good. You know, as I think about this idea of kind of a, a going against our nature, I was reminded of something I, I saw a few years ago by um, the Uh, the scholar and theologian Eugene Peterson. If you don't know that name, Eugene Peterson was probably one of the leading kind of authors and scholars and uh, theologians in the last however many years. He passed away just a few years ago. He most famously translated the the Message Bible. And so he was known as just this very gentle um, Christian man. And yet Eugene Peterson was raised in a Christian home. um, And as a child, before he was sent off to school, this is what he says about his childhood. He said, I'd been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. That's what he's taught at home. He says, I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me. There must be some sixth sense that bullies have. Because most afternoons after school, this Garrison Johns would catch me and beat me up. He also found out that I was a Christian and he taunted me with Jesus sissy. I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. My mother told me, Eugene, this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I better get used to it. She also said that I was supposed to pray for him. Well, one day I was with six or seven of other friends on the way home from school when Garrison caught up with us. And that afternoon he started jabbing me and poking me. He says, Then it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground and I sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees so that he was helpless at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fist. It felt good, said the author of the message translation. So I hit him again. Blood spurted out from his nose. It was a lovely crimson in the snow. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it, so I hit him again, more blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself, and I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it, so I hit him again, more blood. I tried again, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. And it's a classic story that we relate to, and it's funny, but it just reminds us what we know to be true, that inside every one of us is this human nature that is bent on self-preservation and self-advancement, even if it means we find ourselves doing this crazy stuff that we never thought we would do. Uh, even for, uh, for us to realize that, that we're doing these things out of our nature, when Jesus says there's a better way, there's an upside-down kingdom. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you a little chart. It's in your notes there. And this is just a simple thing that that I made. You could probably make something even more than this if you spent just a little bit of time on it. But time and time again throughout the Bible and in Jesus' teaching, we see that there is a contrast between what we're calling the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. They're just different values. So for instance, we've spent our whole life being discipled by the kingdom of the world. And so we're taught that pride is an ultimate value, be strong, right? Get what's yours. Be, be proud. But then Jesus comes along and he says that the value in my kingdom is humility. We're taught that, that life is about force, right? Assert yourself, power. It's about greed. Get as much as you can and make sure you get what is rightfully yours. And Jesus comes along and he talks about love and generosity and trust in God and seek first the kingdom before greed. We're taught, or it's just kind of naturally in us, this self-protection. Take care of me. Take care of mine. Jesus says, no, there's a way of self-sacrifice. We're taught self-promotion. Just advance yourself. Jesus says, no, come and serve others. And like I said, you could probably make uh, an even more complete list with just a little time, but you can see why when you look at a list like this, people would call the kingdom of God an upside-down kingdom. Because it's different than what we're used to. And that brings us to point number two. And point number two is this. Our job as disciples, if we're really going to be citizens of another kingdom, our job is to bring what's up there down here. It's to take that stuff on that top thing and bring it down to the bottom. And you guys, Jesus teaches us this with a very famous line from the Lord's Prayer. In fact, it was great to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And I don't know uh, if you, you know, had that in you and could pray it by heart, or you need to follow along on the screens. It doesn't matter. Um, but as I was, uh, we were praying that. It reminded me of a of an old story. You got to be pretty old to remember this, but <coughs> excuse me. The um the Chicago Bears back in the nineteen eighties had this terrific football team. They were coached by Mike Ditka and Jim McMahon was their quarterback. And they had a guy on their team known as William the refrigerator Perry. Anybody remember the fridge? He was like 350 pounds, full of life and fun and stuff like that. He's kind of the heart of the team. And uh, one day, the Chicago Bears are in their pre-team chapel, and their chaplain is there with them. And he says, "Hey, before we go out and play the game, I think that we should all uh, join hands and pray the Lord's prayer." And Coach Ditka says, "Hey, chaplain, why don't we have the fridge lead the Lord's prayer?" And so everybody kind of snickers a little bit and Jim McMahon starts laughing and, and he says to the chaplain, he says, there's no way the fridge knows the Lord's Prayer. He just doesn't, he doesn't know it. In fact, I'll bet you $100 he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. The chaplain's not really a betting guy, but what is he going to do? So he shakes hands and, and they hold hands and they bow their heads and close their eyes and the fridge leads out. Now I lay me down to rest. <laughs> I pray a the Lord my soul will bless amen. And everybody looked out. And what do you see is you see Jim McMahon reaching for his wallet. He pulls out a hundred bucks, gives it to the chaplain. He says, I couldn't believe he actually did know the Lord's prayer after all. (laughs) Point being, I get it, we all might not have it memorized and that kind of stuff, but in the Lord's Prayer is something that is so foundational for the disciple who's going to make the kingdom of God our kingdom. Jesus, in one of his many lines that we have prayed time and time again, says this, God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, God, your kingdom up there come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God, your kingdom up there is so good, and we need it so bad, we need it down here. May the stuff that is true up there in heaven be done down here on earth. So then, uh, if, you, if you look again at that chart in your notes, basically what it says is all that stuff at the top, the humility, the, the, the self-sacrifice, the self-preservation, the, the love, the generosity, those are kingdom values. And the concept here is anytime we are living those things out, those up there values down here in the world, you know what we're doing? We are making his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And you guys, that's a huge part of what a disciple does. We take God's stuff up there and we make it real and tangible down here on earth. In fact, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But just before Matthew chapter 5, we read this about Jesus, uh, what Jesus is doing. So this is the very last uh, event that takes place before the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew five uh, or 4.23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, doing what he always does, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And what's he doing? He's healing every disease and sickness among the people. News spread all over Syria, and people brought to him, all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, And he healed them And large crowds began to follow him So as Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom What are the actions that are going along with that? What are the things that he's doing? Well sick people are being cared for And sick people are being made well Those that are in spiritual bondage Those that are even possessed by demons Are being set free Set free from their bondage People that are oppressed by pain Are finding relief The paralyzed, those that are stuck, are getting unstuck. People heard good news and more and more people came to follow him. In other words, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom and all that up there stuff began to be done down here. That's all up there. All that up there stuff became down here. And in other places, we see that Jesus connects uh, other things with the kingdom of God. So just kind of throughout his teaching, uh, he says the kingdom of God is when good news gets proclaimed to the poor. That's an up there thing. When a prisoner gets visited or cared for, that's a kingdom of God kind of thing. When a person shows childlike faith and trust in God, that's a kingdom thing. When we repent from sin, when we turn away from our sin and towards Jesus, that's a kingdom thing. When we forgive someone else, and especially when there's reconciliation between people, that is a kingdom thing. Those are all things that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our so what this morning is a very simple concept, and it's kind of a challenge for you and for me as well. This week, how can I become a kingdom bringer? Because just as an ambassador represents one country to another country, if discipleship means that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, how do we represent our home culture of the kingdom of God to the kingdom of this world? How do we bring his up there down here? Well, you can make a pretty good list of that, but let's just start by those that are closest to you. What would it look like to be a kingdom bringer in your home? Because every time you show patience and kindness to someone that you share a house with, someone that you live with, you're bringing a kingdom thing from up there down here. Husbands, every time you put your wife's needs before your own, every time you lead with strength but kindness and truth but grace, you're bringing the kingdom of God into your home parent, every time you teach your child about the ways of God, and you read his Bible, and you pray together, you're taking the kingdom of God things, and you're bringing it into your home. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we can do that. The thought of me being able to be someone that brings the kingdom of God into my own home is revolutionary, and I want to be a part of that. What about just take it out a little bit, kind of just your circle of, of influence, maybe the people that you work with, students, the, the people that you go to school with. What if it would look like in, in your school, if the person that's forever left out, forever put down, forever, you know, not invited in, what if in the name of Jesus, you opened up and invited someone in and showed kindness to someone when everybody else isn't showing kindness? You know what you've done? You brought the kingdom of God right there to your school. You brought the kingdom of God right there into your circle of influence. What about in the community? What about in the world? Every time we do something to care for the poor in the name of Jesus, every time we come alongside someone who is struggling emotionally, imprisoned, every time we help someone have spiritual lights come on in the name of Jesus, we're taking the up there and we're bringing it down there into real life. Every time you come alongside and heal the sick or care for the sick. I know a lot of us can't heal the sick, but maybe it's just to care for those that are sick. I was thinking of just a simple example of this. Um, over Christmas, some of you know that my wife, Janie, broke her, her leg. And so she was in a cast for, for three, uh, three weeks and then in a boot. And, and not only was it painful, but it was just, it was hard to get around. And you know, the, it was just a lot to do. And, and some of you reached out to her because you knew that she wasn't feeling that great or doing that great with calls and texts. And some of you brought meals and food because you knew if I was left to doing the food, the barnes would starve to death and that's not good. But the point that I'm trying to make is those are simple things, but you know what you were doing? You were bringing the kingdom of God to our house because you were doing the things that Jesus did when he talked about the kingdom of God. He cared for the, the sick and, and I guess you want us to see how can you be a kingdom bringer this week because the, the last point is this, becoming a citizen of the kingdom starts with knowing Jesus as the king of your life, Jesus ends the whole Sermon on the Mount, and there's a scripture in there that I won't read, but you can read it this week, ends the whole Sermon on the Mount by saying, you know what? You can do all kinds of things, uh, but unless I am the King of your life, you're missing the kingdom. And so he invites us in. In fact, you know what I would say about all of this kingdom of God stuff? You might call it the Jesus way. It's the, the way of Jesus. And so as we close this morning, I want to invite our worship team to come uh, forward, and they are going to lead us in a closing song. It's called The Jesus Way, and it kind of talks about some of these things, and and here's what I'd like you to do. We did this just a couple weeks ago, same concept. As they sing this song, I'd invite you to just stay seated and to just let the words kind of wash over you. They're they're pretty significant words. And so just sit and and listen, but if there's a time when you're ready to say, I I agree with this, I want to commit to to what I'm singing or what I'm saying, then we invite you to stand um, and sing about what it means to follow after the Jesus way. Thanks,
1: guys.